Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Kylie Mulholland, and I'm the new voice. I'd like to thank everyone who voted for me in the podcast competition. I work for Penguin as part of the Ladybird team, creating a range of beautiful books for babies, toddlers, and early learners. And I've loved my job ever since I joined back in 2010. I can't wait to get started on my first ever Penguin podcast, and I look forward to hearing your comments soon. This month, we're going with a New Year, New You theme, so we've got lots of inspirational talks for you today. We've got Dr. Mike Dow, author of Diet Rehab, with his top tips for 2012. We've got John Tierney, co-author of Willpower, who will be answering some questions about the importance of willpower in success and happiness. And finally, we've got some career advice from Mrs. Moneypenny on why it's never too late to change careers. But first, we thought it best to start with some retalks. So we've got Ben Masters reading from his debut Naughties, published via Hamish Hamilton Imprint. The book is published on February 2nd, and Dazed and Confused said of it, there's something of the early Martin Amos in Ben Masters' debut novel. Ah, mate. This is how it begins. This is how it always begins. Four flat characters sitting round a table with our pints of snake bite, our pints of diesel. Ah, mate. We contort our faces into gruesome grandeur, gurning with eloquence and verve. Scott with his question mark nose, Jack with his inverted comma eyebrows, Sanjay with his square bracket ears. Nodding and grunting and twitching our legs, we clutch our carbonated weapons of mass destruction. Ah, mate. My name is Elliot Lamb. I'm the one with the first mane. Utterly fantastic it is, blonde, wavy, thick and full of spunk. You can tell I've gone to a lot of effort with the old creams and unguents, but it is a special occasion after all. It's our last night at university. I've even cultivated some designer stubble, sprinkled over my rosy face like Morse code, with all its dots and dashes. And if the code was readable, it would go something like this. There's a lot on my mind tonight, pal. Oh, such a lot. And things could get very messy. We're in the King's Arms, Oxford, rainy weekend eve, unfortunate travellers fumbling our way into the sticky crotch of a night on the lash. Ah, mate. This is the end, beautiful friend, the end. Our university finale, the last time we'll ever do this. The real world snaps viciously at our cracked skin heels, groaning of jacket and tie, briefcase, headcase, hair receding, tumble-dry mortality. I stare into the bottom of my pint glass and glimpse faint outlines of the infinite. I gaze into the abyss. Sip, sip, chug. Four pressurised valves, released and relieved, letting off steam. I needed that, blurts Jack, right on cue. Scott says, anyone else out tonight? A droopy old man falters past. He wears the heady bonfires and dissident blossoms of the cool summer air, stirring fragrances of ale and tobacco. I sent a load of texts. That's me. My tripwire legs are vibrating beneath the table, compulsive and anxious. Some of the girls are coming in a bit, I add judiciously. Rhyming nods of solemn approval. Jack traces his high-rise quiff, just to make sure it's still there. Glug, glug, swallow. The phone in my pocket chatters, clamping after my testicles with cancerous claw. I don't reach for it. It'll be Lucy. She rang just before I came out, but I was a bit hesitant and evasive, needing to fix myself for the big night, picking the right shirt, nailing the hair, generally ogling the mirror in a you-talking-to-me type fashion, and also being at an awkward place in my character development. I already have something pressing to face up to, something that needs to be dealt with tonight. I do feel bad about Lucy, though. She sounded, well, nervous, lost somehow. It was all the preambling that got in the way. Where are you? Are you on your own? Please don't overreact to what I have to say. 
I was running late and that was valuable time spent already. Only now I have the feeling that it was something important. Must have been. I mean, we don't really talk on the phone anymore, and my promise to call her later seemed desperately inadequate. I should have just heard her out, but she was the last person I wanted to speak to, given my plans for tonight. Maybe I'll send her a text in a bit. She doesn't go here, Oxford that is, not being the academic type. She'll be making a lot of appearances though, whether haunting from the margins or dancing resplendent across my imagination, and she's playing on my mind already. Ah, oh, mate. The King's Arms is filled to spilling point. Students run rampant in red cheek naivety. With military front precision, the place bears its insistent demographics. Flowery thespians with lager for Yorick skulls, meathead rugby players, cauliflower-eared, broccoli-beard, potato-reared, floundering in homoeroticism. Red corduroy socialites with upturned collars and likewise noses. Bohemian billies and bryonies, all scarves, hats and paisley skirts. Indie sheiks and glam-gloss chicks. Crushed velvet Tory boys feigning agedness. Pub golfers and fancy-dressed bar crawlers. Lads and ladettes, chavs and chavettes. And the locals, frowning at the whole motley spectacle. And then there's us, the noughties. We are quotidian calamities, unwitting lyricisms. Veritable Wordsworths out on the raz, lugging 20th century regret on our backs. How to convey the gang to you? Scott, Jack and Sanjay. Well, I like to buttonhole people, fasten them in nice and tight wherever I see fit, and wait for the holes to sag. The buttons begin to shuffle and slide, impatient with the restriction, and then, the hold worn, no longer adequate, they break free. Excuse the ready exchange of metaphors, but as Augie March says, there is no accuracy or fineness of suppression. If you hold one thing down, you hold the adjoining. My style is to hold everything down, as firmly as possible, and hope that only the most vigorous stuff rises. So, there's Jack, still my best mate, I think, and clown extraordinaire. Right now he's clenching a pint of Stella, and wearing a white-collared blue shirt, sleeves rolled, top three buttons undone, flashing a hairless chest with each flap of the loose collar, his shortish brown cut moulded to aerodynamic specifications. Next to Jack is Scott, rocking a sprawl of auburn without styling gel. He's private school and they don't really do hair product like us stateies. Scott's drinking Cronenberg and chancing a pink shirt. He's bigger than the rest of us, being a college rower and rugby player, but he has the softer disposition, his various insecurities taking the edge off his muscles. Jack and I have affected occasional gym regimes ourselves, though we never actually change shape or size, clinging to our coat hanger frames and the self-assuring consolation that girls don't like big men. They don't. Muscle freaks them out. Still, we bought a barrel of protein shake at the start of our second year, hoping it might prove the key to the kind of rapid muscle development we felt we deserved. I was happy just mixing the potion in with a glass of milk after each workout, while Jack all out binged on the stuff, sprinkling it on his cornflakes, dipping crisps and chocolate bars, pouring it into his bedside glass of water, even layering it on top of his toothpaste. Naturally, our bodies stayed stubbornly put. No tightening of skin, no swell of veins, no progression in shirt size. Don't get me wrong, we're not runts or anything, just bothersomely average. And finally, there's Sanjay, Stella, wearing his black Fred Perry with the white trimming. It's his lucky shirt, though I can't testify to the accuracy of the appellation. If it does attract the fairer sex, it's certainly not working its voodoo tonight. Our table is demonstrably cock-heavy. Sanjay has a little blinking tick going on. Every now and then he is able to shake it off, but as soon as you remind him, hey Sanj, I haven't seen you do the blink in ages, it returns, oh for fuck's sake, wink wink. You want to know what I'm wearing too? Black jeans on the skinnier side of slim fit and a blue and white check shirt. Stella. We're over at the quiz machine, slurping our student loans and tossing shrapnel into the slot. Gather round. Question. 
In Brideshead Revisited, what is the name of Sebastian's teddy bear? A. Paddington B. Rupert C. Aloysius D. Baloo Drink while you think. Common Elliot, you do English, says Jack. Did English? I'm finished now, ain't I? I protest. How the fuck should I know, anyway? Jack, a physicist, has always wondered what exactly it is that I do know, literature as an academic pursuit being entirely mysterious to him, and is looking at me doubtfully. The only social utility of my subject that he can make out is its occasional propensity for propelling progress on quiz machines, as well as select rounds of university challenge. But yeah, I add, it's definitely Aloysius. English. I've served three years. Pulling all-nighters over weekly essays, arguing indefensible points with unswerving commitment, and defying all common sense with consistent illogic, I've completed my subject. English. I'm nearly fluent now, mate. But what next? Back to Wellingborough, I guess. I feel it closing in like an obscene womb, pulling me into its suffocating folds. And then what? Fuck yeah, shouts Jack, selecting the correct answer. There goes my phone again. Lucy. That was Ben Masters, with the introduction from his debut novel, Naughties, out 2nd of February. And now, to the detox part of this podcast. Next up, we have Dr Mike Dow, author of Diet Rehab, with his top tips to start a healthy 2012. Hi, this is Dr. Mike Dow, author of Diet Rehab. I'm here to give you my top 10 tips to start a healthy 2012. The first tip is to focus on the what's right in your life, not the what's wrong. All of us have this tendency to always look at, you know, what could be better or what we don't like. But when we start to go through the world with sort of rose-colored glasses looking for the what's right, we'll usually find them. Number two, Create healthy rituals in your life. I want you to do things that you are going to do every day or every week on a weekly basis. It is so much more important and more effective to go to a Tuesday 7 p.m. yoga class with your friends every Tuesday rather than going all out at the gym for a week and something that you are less likely to stay with. Number three, focus on what you are adding to your life, not what you're taking away. So instead of telling yourself, oh, there's so many things I need to change, Ask yourself, what are one or two healthy things I can add to my life? And when we do that, unhealthy behaviors usually seem to go away kind of on their own. Number four, weight loss and healthy living is a marathon and not a sprint. So don't set yourself up for failure by going on a all-out binge or an all-out diet that is unsustainable or something that you can't do in the long run. Because remember, life's race is long and it's only with yourself. Number five, I tell my patients, you need to stop shooting all over yourself. I should be skinnier. I should be younger. I should be happier. And again, start to look at what's right and stop personalizing. So every thing that happens in your life has two explanations. One, you can interpret it as that person didn't call me back because I'm not good enough. Or we can actually start telling ourselves that other explanation. Maybe that person isn't ready for a relationship. Number six, I want you to stop existing and start living in your life, whatever that means to you. Do that thing today that scares you, that makes you feel good and alive. Number seven, move from filling your life with pleasure to more passion, purpose, and peace. When we have those things as human beings, we are so much happier in the long term. Number eight, you are as sick as your secrets. So if there is some unhealthy behavior that you are not telling anybody about, tell somebody, whether it's a family member or friend or mental health professional. Number nine, get out of your head and get into your life. 
Paralysis analysis is one of the pitfall mentalities I mentioned in diet rehab, where you think and think and think about your problems, but that only keeps you trapped in them. Number 10, this year, I want you to set achievable, specific, and time-sensitive goals. These are goals that you are more likely to keep. I hope all of you read Diet Rehab. Thanks so much for tuning in to this top 10 list. Have a great 2012. That was Dr. Mike Dow with his tips to starting a healthy new year. Next up, Patrick Lochran, editorial assistant at Penguin Press, interviews John Tierney, co-author with Roy Baumeister of Willpower, Rediscovering Our Greatest Strength. Together, they'll be discussing how willpower is a strength we all too often neglect in this age of constant temptation. So, John, um, many of us uh, probably think of willpower as something beyond our control. Um, It's something you either have or you don't. Um, But is that actually true? No, uh, there's probably some genetic component to willpower. Some people may be born with more of it, but all of us can learn to strengthen it. You know, the, and what's interesting is that for all of us, willpower it's this, it's a store of mental energy, and it gets and it gets depleted as you use it. It's like a muscle that can be um, fatigued as you use it. But the good news is that it can also be strengthened by exercise, the way a muscle can. So you can strengthen your willpower over the long run. And why is willpower that important, anyway? Well, um, when scientists look at things that predict success in life, you know, they find that self-control and willpower are, are just there. They're, you know, people with stronger willpower, they do better in school and at work. They're healthier and wealthier. They're happier. Their personal relationships are better. Their children are more likely to thrive. The researchers keep finding that the two great predictors of success are self-control and intelligence. And it's a lot easier to improve your willpower than your IQ. Okay, so we're in January now, um, a time when probably many people have already broken their New Year's resolutions. Um, So can you explain why it is so hard to stick to those resolutions? Well, one big mistake people make is that they make too many resolutions. and, And we've got this finite supply of willpower. It's a source of mental energy that's actually, you know, powered by glucose in your bloodstream, and there's this finite amount of it. And if you make six resolutions, then they're all working against each other because you only have that one store to deal with it. So one reason is is that people try to do too many things. You should do one thing, do them one at a time. And once you, you do something and you do it for a while, it becomes a habit. So then it becomes much easier because you don't actually have to make this conscious um, effort to control yourself. It just comes naturally, and, and that's what... and. You know, people who have good willpower, people who who manage to conserve it and and not try to do too many things with it. So, I mean, I guess that presents the question of what the greatest threat or challenge to willpower is in our society today. Is it just the fact that there's too much temptation out there? Well, yeah. Uh, the bad news is is that there is more temptation than ever because I, I mean, it used to be that, that people just went to work and, and pretty much all you could do at work was work or maybe talk to your colleagues. But now, I mean, you can um, stop working at any time, you know, one click of a mouse or, or, you know, one look at a smartphone and you can just be doing anything else. And this is where there are temptations around the clock. You could, you know, gamble whenever you want. You can shop whenever you want. Um, There's more food around uh, than ever. Um, So that's the bad news is is we're just tempted all day long. And, 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 you know, my co-author, Willpower, uh, Roy Baumeister, you know, his He's done studies showing that, that we spend perhaps a fifth um, of the day resisting to 
far more tools than ever for trying to deal with these temptations. So how can that average person in the workplace or wherever learn to improve his or her willpower and self-control? Well, you know, there, you know, there are more than um, a dozen studies now showing that, you know, the willpower can be increased. You can really build character, as they used to say. Um, it, you know, it's like a muscle that gets strengthened through exercise. Simply you know, doing anything that requires self-control, like, you know, just, you know, one famous experiment, people just sat up straight for a week. They were told to, to work on their posture over the week. And when they came back to the laboratory, um, they performed much better on all kinds of tasks that had nothing to do with posture. So anything you do, just, you know, to, to uh, that's probably where meditation and we're, we're saying prayers and we're fasting and these, these traditional religious practices, they really do build willpower because you're building up that self-control muscle. Um, the other thing you can do is is to try to uh, conserve it by um, by outsourcing willpower. You know, when um, there are all these tools that we discuss in the book, you know, the, the, these new digital tools that will keep track of things for you um, and that will you know tell you when you've exceeded, you know, how many steps you've taken today. They'll keep track of what you're doing on your computer um, and they'll tell you, you know, today you spent so much time. You know, simply. Try you know, keeping track of things is the, the first big step in willpower is you have to set a very specific goal and a realistic goal. The next step is to monitor yourself. And there are lots of tools that we discuss in the book that will help you set that goal and help you monitor it, uh, monitor yourself. And you can also then turn to, you know, there are all these new digital social networks that can help you enforce these, these goals by keeping track of you too. And what... Uh has the single greatest impact on that ability to exercise self-control? Is there one thing, or is it many things together? Well, you know, one of the biggest tricks with uh, Roy has found, my co-author has found one of his new studies where they track people um, all day long to see who is resisting desires when. And one of the surprising findings was that the people with the best self-control were the people who used willpower less often. Now, that seems strange, but in fact, it makes sense when you think about it, because these people, they didn't count on willpower to rescue them from one crisis after another all day long. You know, they um, they set up their lives so that they didn't face all that many temptations, and, and so they, they they saved their willpower so, so it was there when they needed it. So, it's, you know, they didn't bring candy to their desk, or if they did, they put it in a drawer instead of sitting on top of the desk. It, you know, they would avoid buying, bringing junk food into their kitchen. Um, they would, you know, don't walk by the donut store on the way to work. Um, they did things like that where they would set up their lives to um, to reduce the, the demands on their willpower. I mean, just one simple thing for exercising. It's a lot easier to exercise if you don't have to get up and, and, and decide each day, am I going to exercise or not? Because decisions... Making decisions, as we explain in the book, also depletes willpower. But if you set up a regular appointment to exercise and, and maybe do it with a friend, suddenly it's much easier because you're not having to force yourself. You're not having to make these decisions, do I do it or, or do I not? And you've got this friend to help basically to outsource some of that self-control. So you, know, so you have to go to the gym because you've agreed to meet your friend there. Okay, and so were you and your co-author Roy um, able to draw and apply some of the lessons in the book in your own lives? I mean, it made a really big difference in my life because I, you know, I used to be um, really disorganized and a terrible procrastinator. I'm a journalist who would, 
you know, be lucky to get something in at the deadline, you know, or be late for the deadline, and my editor would be screaming for copy. And I've been that way, you know, since I was um, I'm in school, turning in papers late. Um, but, you know, for this book, I decided to try, you know, the self-control techniques studied by Roy, you know, like monitoring precisely how many words I wrote each day. Um, and I used a computer software to keep track of how much time I was surfing the web and how much time I was writing. And, you know, to my amazement, we turned in the manuscript two months ahead of the deadline, which I think is probably um, will get me thrown out of the author's guild for that. <laughs> and I've kept using many of the digital tools and the other monitoring strategies we discuss in the book. And I started weighing myself every day. I've lost about 10 pounds. My, my finances are in better shape because I get automatic notices of, of what's being spent and explain in the book how you can do that. Um, I wear an electronic armband all day keeps track of my exercise and my steps and my sleep. Um, I use a smartphone app for the kind of to-do list that we discuss in the book and how that makes things easier. And I, you know, So, you know, I've, I've gotten much better. It, it just and, and, I, and the nice thing is it's not, it doesn't really feel that compulsive. A lot of these things, they actually make life easier, as we explain in the book. Once you use these tools and once you um, to do them properly, it just takes a load off your mind. It, it enables you to relax enjoy what you're doing at the moment instead of worrying about all the stuff that you should be doing or, and, or the temptations that you've needlessly brought onto yourself. Great. Well, let's hope uh, our readers can apply those lessons as well. Um, well. Thank you. I hope so. That was Patrick Lochran interviewing John Tierney. Now we have Mrs. Moneypenny, successful businesswoman and FT columnist, reading an extract from her new book, Mrs. Moneypenny's Careers Advice for Ambitious Women. In this extract, she talks about how it's never too late to change jobs. Just think, new year, new career. Hello, I'm Mrs Moneypenny, and I hope to inspire you to push yourself right out of your comfort zone. Too many women give up on their ambitions too easily, and often for the simplest and most unnecessary of reasons. The one that is the most unnecessary of all is, it is too late. I was 26 years old, when I realised I had made a terrible mistake. I was engaged to be married for what was truth be told the fourth time when it dawned on me that I should have taken a very different route in life. No, I did not break off the engagement. Having been a serial fiancé for some time, I really had to go ahead and get married or no one would have taken me seriously ever again. But I did take steps to address my mistake, which was in my professional rather than my personal life. My mistake was not to have trained as a chartered accountant. I had come to realise, four years after obtaining my undergraduate degree, that accountancy was something I would have loved and been good at, and which would have given me credibility in my career. To this day, it is my one regret in life. In general, I don't do regret, just as I don't do guilt. They are both emotions which use up far too much energy and can distract ambitious women. Why did I not resign there and then from my job? and apply for a training contract. I thought it was too late. I was used to people entering the accountancy profession straight from university. I had already been in the workplace for a few years. I told myself off for not having done it when I graduated and never even looked into the possibility of starting over again at the age of 26. Much too late, I thought. Too late? I was 26? Looking back at that decision now, I cannot believe it. I was barely out of the crib. 
Not many years later, the younger sister of my longest-standing girlfriend also realised at the same age that she should have trained as an accountant and mentioned to LSG that she thought it was too late. LSG told her not to be so silly. It was never too late, and especially not at the age of 26. She gave up her job and joined an accountancy firm. 20-odd years on, she is sailing around the world with her husband, while I am working 14-hour days. There is probably a lesson here. The truth is, it is never too late for anything. To go into politics, to write your first novel, to tweet, to climb Everest, or to learn to swim. The truth is, women are far more susceptible to putting up hurdles to their progress than men. Claiming that it is too late for something is the most frequently encountered hurdle of all. Don't do it. Never use that excuse. If you find yourself saying it is too late, you are almost certainly wrong. For a start, I hate assumptions. I once read that the word assume was a terrible word because it makes an ass out of you and me. And while that is a bit crass even for me, it is a good thing to remember. Never assume anything. Women are busy people, especially if they are running the usual multitasking path of career, children, husband, and probably because of that are far too easily persuaded or, worse still, assume that their way forward is through a door which is already closed and locked. How do you know if you should even be changing direction? A good checklist might be, one, do you get up in the morning and dread going to work? Two, do you feel that you add very little value in the work that you do? Three, do you look at your boss and think that you really don't want their job? If the answer to any one of those was yes, you should probably think about doing something else. What should you do instead? You may know this, of course, but if you don't, start by writing down lists of careers or organisations you would like to think about and then find someone who works in that area and ask them about it. Ask people to suggest ideas for you. Keep a list in a notebook and then cross them off when you decide that they are not really for you. Once you have decided what you want to try and do, you might have to think laterally about how to get experience in the field that you want to move into. And I discuss in the book how you can try and do this. Many career choices will require retraining or another qualification. How you go about this, if needed, will depend entirely on your personal circumstances. It is always best to try and study for a new qualification full time if you can. You already have a mortgage? Think about renting out your property and moving to retrain somewhere nearby where you can live more cheaply. One of my colleagues at work did this, taking a year out, renting out her apartment and going to live with her parents while doing her MBA. You have children? If they are young, they might enjoy living and going to school somewhere different for a while. Your husband has a job and can't move? Well, if you have a household income of some kind, you might consider borrowing the money to invest in your career. But there will always be people, and I was one of them, who cannot give up their income. I studied for my MBA part-time while working and having my first child. It nearly killed me, which is why I recommend that other people try and do it full-time if they possibly can. But if you are disciplined and know what your priorities are, it is possible. You will probably have to start at the bottom again in your new career. This may not be palatable, but what would you prefer? A good wage for something you hate doing, or less money and more satisfaction? We all spend too much time at work for us not to enjoy it. 
If you have aptitude and work hard, the financial differential will soon disappear. In this podcast, we have seen how easy it is to think it is too late, even at a young age, if you are a woman. The sheer pace of our lives and the things that take up our time, work, children, aged parents and so on, make it easy to shelve ambition and or fail to address a career that has plateaued. But we live longer than men and we have many years in which to achieve the things that we want to, even if there are challenges on the way. It is never too late to move forward, whatever your ambitions. You can do it. That was Mrs Moneypenny with some great advice for the new year. And finally, we have some New Year's advice from Penguin. How about treating yourself to some alone time and kicking back with a good book? Or how about kicking back with 52 books all year round? 52 Books is Penguin's annual reading list, themed to suit your taste. From comedy to horror to summer reads and romantic flings, you'll be able to find something to suit whatever mood you're in. What's even better is that you can share each book with your friends as you cross them off your list and, if you're feeling creative, you can take the Twitter review challenge by sending us a review of the book in a single tweet and we'll feature the best on our Twitter account. So head to www.penguin.co.uk slash 52 books and start knocking books off your list today. And that's it from the Penguin podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.